Well, please, if you would, would you turn in your uh, Bibles to Mark 9. We'll be reading from verse 14. And if you would, would you please uh, stand and join me as I uh, pray before we read. Most gracious God, we pray uh, now for ourselves and those around us, those to our left and right in front of us and behind us, that you would uh, grant that everything that is an obstruction to hearing your word today uh, would be overcome, that our uh, noisy minds and hearts would be quieted, uh, that we'd be uh, soft and receptive to what you would say to us, that you would enable us uh, to hear and combine what we hear with faith, that it might benefit us. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw great crowds surrounding them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with him? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring it to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And then he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You may take your seats. Well, when we moved to South Carolina... We purchased our first home, and the backyard uh, was uh, completely enclosed with a chain-link fence. It was about a half acre of, uh, of ground, and we knew that we'd need to buy a lawnmower and a weed whacker, nothing like a fence that has grass growing up, up uh, in the chains. And I fortunately had a man, just so happened that one of the elders owned a small engine a repair shop, and he sold these things. And he said, come out to my shop, I'll, I'll give you a deal. 
and uh, he sold me a Toro lawnmower and, um, and a weed whacker, string trimmer. And he said, you want to go with gas. You've got too big a yard to, to drag a cord around in. And so I did. And he was right. These were both wonderful machines. Um, that weed whacker, you prime it, you pull the cord, and immediately it started right up. For 15 years, I moved to a new house, and it was time to replace it. And I went to Home Depot and looked for a model that said, guaranteed to start. <laughs> and it had a tag about this size that described the instructions. Well, I set it down, you know, fresh uh, gas in it and follow those instructions meticulously. And I did this until my arm dropped onto the pavement. And uh, I uh, tried several times and I took it to the shop, you know, and of course um, they got it running right away. But I brought it home. I tried, but uh, failed. Now, I wish trying and failing was limited to yard equipment, but unfortunately, it covers a lot more of uh, my life. Sometimes, uh, in the way that I uh, want to speak to somebody, perhaps a member of my family, with tenderness and, and gentle, but I, I'm upset with them and I fail. Or, um, I'm trying to really get serious about facing something that's been a long-term challenge in my life. And I try, but, you know, I, I well, I just don't. I, I, I fail. Um, sometimes it's a person that I, I meet with that I care deeply about, and I try to persuade them to take a different course of action. And I give it my best, but I fail. Tried but failed describes the experience the disciples are having when a distressed father brings his son who's possessed by an evil spirit, a spirit that is uh, attacking this boy, wanting to kill him. And the disciples try, but they're unable to cast out uh, the demon and free the boy. They are powerless and it's humiliating because there is a crowd watching their spiritual failure. Now, this uh, story is the only one of its kind in the Gospels. This is the only event that we're told they tried uh, but uh, failed. And the event's recorded in two of the other Gospels, but in a much shorter version than we have here. This one is just chock full of those details that communicate is an eyewitness account. Peter is uh, the source uh, for this. Um, he's the one that Mark draws on his recollections to describe this. And from chapter 9 on, to we get to the cross, we are in the discipleship section of Mark. The first part was to reveal his identity. And they, and they understood the disciples' Uh, confessed his identity in Caesarea Philippi. And now the rest of Mark deals with what it means uh, to follow uh, Christ. And so these words are addressed to us. We're supposed to uh, derive understanding for our own lives with Christ from this. So Peter, James, and John 
uh, come down with Jesus from the mountain of transfiguration. They've beheld the glory of Christ into a scene of conflict, confusion, evil, and failure. And, And take note, you should not be surprised in your life when you go from a mountaintop encounter with Christ to conflict, confusion, and failure in your own life. How many times have I had what I thought was a wonderful time with God in the morning, only to fall down flat on my face a few minutes or hours later that day? The teachers of the law are engaged in a dispute with the disciples. They are going to doggedly follow Jesus and his disciples around there. They're looking to build a case against him, And as Jesus arrives, uh, Peter tells us that they were amazed, amazed probably by his sense of timing. And he asks what's going on, and the desperate uh, father describes the plight of his uh, son. The demon has robbed him of his speech and his hearing. It's cut him off completely, really, from people. And Um, seizes the boy in such a manner that the boy ends up in fire and at times water. Helpless, the father uh, fears for the life of his son. And then he adds, I brought my son to you and your disciples weren't able to do anything. You see, in his mind, bringing his son to the disciples was bringing his son to Jesus. And so as the boy is brought to, uh, uh, to G- excuse me, just before the boy is brought to Jesus, Jesus cries out with these really strong words. It's a strong rebuke and it expresses, well, the distress of his spirit about the people of God in his day, of how faithless uh, they were and just how troubling this was uh, to him and just how it, it weighed his spirit uh, down. And as the boy's brought to Jesus, immediately in reaction to seeing Jesus, he convulses uh, the boy. He's flaunting his power over the life of this child. Jesus is moved with compassion, and he asks, how long has he been like this? And the father says, from childhood. And often he's been cast into the water and fire to destroy it. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Well, Jesus echoes the man's words right back to him. If you can. All things are possible to the one who believes. It's not a question of my ability. It's a question of your faith. You see, the man doubts Jesus' ability because of his experience with Jesus' disciples. And the father knows his son's case is a hard one. And his words reveal his doubts. Now, Jesus, in in this line of questioning, as he so often does, is seeking to take this father on a journey of faith. And uh, the very way that he speaks to Jesus uh, elicits uh, this first uh, truth about the state of this man's faith. The man thinks the problem is with Jesus and not with himself. But Jesus says it's with the father's uh, faith. Now, this man, when he sees his unbelief, uh, uh, does he, well, does he try to do do better? Does he just try harder? Does he resolve uh, to be doubtless? 
No, the man immediately cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief seems really contradictory to us. It's like saying uh, the room was as dark as night and filled with light. Right? Except that we actually know what this is because if you're a follower of Christ, you have moments where you're in two minds, where you have faith and you have doubt. We believe, but our hearts and minds are divided, and we don't believe at the very same time. The words cried out that Mark uses express a a very strong emotion. It's a shout. This is a desperate shout. Help me overcome my unbelief. They're words of deep honesty. This man is not trying to guard his dignity. He's fighting for his son as he fights for faith. Now, pride will keep you from this kind of desperate honesty. Pride doesn't want to be seen as needy or helpless or reckless. And so when we're faced with difficult situations, pride says, well, just dig deep, right? Uh, give it more effort. Or maybe even, you know, I have the resources. I can get this solved uh, uh, on my own. Those are the symptoms of proud unbelief. When you bring your doubt to Jesus, it's an act of faith. Jesus isn't put off uh, by the acknowledgement of doubt. He's not disappointed. Uh, He already knows what's inside of us, just as he knew where this man was spiritually. In your spiritual pilgrimage, have you reached the place uh, where you'll shamelessly humble yourself and recklessly uh, come uh, to him and confess your incomplete and partial faith and beg him to gift you with a heart that's single and that's full of faith? Will you desperately cry out to him to do what only he can do? Have you reached your pla- the place in your following Jesus Christ that you can embrace weakness as a gift. Help me overcome reveals that uh, that Jesus' rescue, Jesus' help doesn't depend on the amount of faith that you can generate. It depends on recognizing your inadequacy, your need for divine help. One commentator put it well when he writes, the grace of God often appears only when we fail. The grace of God often appears only when we fail. Now Jesus sees the crowd is uh, growing, and so he acts. The boy is freed, but as so often is the case, When Jesus becomes involved with a life, things get worse before they get better. And so the boy uh, seemingly dies. Actually, Mark leaves it kind of ambiguous and doesn't tell us whether he actually died or not. But Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him up and he arose. Lifted him up and he arose. That's the language of resurrection. 
You may remember the disciples coming down the mountain wondered what it was that Jesus meant by resurrection. Well, Jesus is showing them right here. This is what it looks like. This is what's coming. In this, we see the authority of Jesus, his irresistible authority over the demon, uh, his irreversible authority in commanding that the demon never return to this man, and his resurrection authority as he summons this man to life. Now later, along with Jesus, the disciples ask why they failed. It was a lack of prayer. What, what does Jesus mean by that? You know, was it a lack of prayer there at the moment they were trying to help the boy? Or, or does he mean that there was, generally their whole lives are characterized at this point by a lack of prayer? It's both. You see, the disciples had been commissioned uh, uh, to be able to cast out demons. And they had gone out and done it, and they had seen demons uh, leave people, people freed. And so they just expected that they could uh, continue to do that. They are seeking to continue the ministry of Jesus without Jesus actually being present. They're trying to minister without Jesus. Now, this happens, well, frequently in the life of the church. Yeah, just think about this. You know, we expect God to show up at everything we do. After all, it's his church. We're trying to do this uh, in his name, right? And so isn't he obligated to come here and, and do something? It happens on Sunday mornings. A lot of people... Uh, Followers of Christ get up to go to church, and that's a wonderful thing, of course, and they, they expect that God's going to show up, but they don't beg him to come. They don't, in their preparation, uh, uh, think, well, he's not obligated to come, that I really need to beg him to show up, that my heart would be soft, that the Spirit uh, would move. And so when the, when the sermon or the worship service just seems flat and dull, well, it's the pastor, you know. Never occurred to them that they might have had a part, that they're just sort of presuming that God had to do something. When you get your next pastor, bless him by going to God faithfully and praying for his ministry and praying for the Spirit to move mightily and powerfully here on Sunday morning and in every effort you make to serve him and please him uh, through the week. Faith is the sole bridge between human need and the all-sufficiency of God. It's the sole bridge. And faith grows in the soil of the life of prayer. It grows in the person of God. Not in the outcome, not in faith itself. Prayer is not a way so that you feel like you have strong faith. It's not a way to feel stronger in the area of faith. Why is it that prayerlessness so much characterizes the church in America? It doesn't characterize the church everywhere around the world, but it does in America. Well, I think there's several causes one of them became clear to me as I met with a man named John. Now, John grew up in a uh, home uh, of a pastor 
who uh, taught and believed the absolute authority of Scripture. And John came with a problem, and as we discussed it, I I, uh, asked if he was praying about it, and he said no. And I asked, well, why? And he said, well, it's just my little problem. Why would God uh, be involved with that, be interested in that? You see, John was, well, he had functional deism. And there are a lot of closet deists in church, actually in Presbyterian churches, which are the churches I'm most uh, familiar uh, with. Deism, uh, boys and girls, is the idea that uh, God is the great uh, cosmic clock builder. And he built the clock of the universe and he wound it up and then he let it go and it's just winding uh, down. And uh, it's just ticking along all by itself. God's really remote. He's way away from the clock. Um, And our everyday lives, our problems, our concerns, our challenges just don't interest him. Oh, he might occasionally involve himself in something, but, but pretty much that's the exception. Our problems are just too ordinary and too trivial uh, for him uh, to bother with. And so if you think like that, you're not going to pray much. Some people suffer from fatalism, and it's found its way into the lives of Christians, and especially uh, Reformed Christians, because they come to think that God's sovereignty and that he has a plan means that what will be will be. It's all predestined, and so it really doesn't matter what I do. The error in this thinking uh, uh, is hidden in the truth that God is big, he's transcendent, he does have a plan, but part of this plan is your and my prayers. Those are part of how God's going to accomplish what he does. And when you have a, a fatalism at the heart of your faith, when that's what shapes Uh, the way that you actually uh, live, well, you're not going to have a life of prayer. In fact, you're you're probably not going to live in a really responsible uh, way. Other Christians, they think I'm simply not good enough for God to answer a prayer of mine. And this is a failure to believe the gospel that announces that in Christ, we are loved more than we ever imagined. But perhaps the most common is what I think is happening here with the disciples. They are self-sufficient. They thought they had a gift. It was one uh, theirs uh, to control and use at their whim. They're, in other words, trusting in themselves. And this is a challenge for those of you who are specially gifted. And so many of you are. You're really gifted and talented people. It's so easy to approach life out of the strength of your gifts instead of out of reliance on God. You see, the essence of prayer is an admission of our inadequacy and helplessness. It says, I'm spiritually poor. If you want to pray more, then, well, admit you're spiritually poor. Face that reality. This desperate father is a positive example of what faith looks like. Faith lays a hold of Christ in his compassion and his sufficiency by its admission of its inability. Now Jesus says all things are possible for the one 
who believes. And these words have, well, they've been understood in various ways. Um, He expands on this only one place in Mark's gospel. Jesus says to his disciples, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. So let me tell you how this teaching works out often in people's uh, lives to their great hurt. Uh, Larry uh, was a, a member of the church I was serving, and he was from Boston, and he loved ice hockey. In fact, he played amateur uh, ice hockey uh, late at night when the rink was available on a team. And as you can imagine, uh, while well, he was quite athletic, he had the body of a, of a bodybuilder. And one day he began to notice a weakness uh, in his body. And that led to a doctor's visit and tests and more tests. And he got the diagnosis. He had ALS. For those of you who don't know, ALS is one of the most terrible things you could ever hear from a doctor. It means that you're going to have a progressive degenerative disease that's going to weaken your muscles. Most people die from it within five years because they can't breathe anymore. Here's this man with young children. He's facing this terrible diagnosis. And so he asks for the elders of the church to come and pray, and we do, but he's not instantly healed. And so uh, in his understandable desperation, he begins to look around uh, for people who have ministries of healing and claim that they see many healings. And he uh, finds a group of people and they say to him, Larry, your healing depends on your faith. And uh, Larry uh, uh, convinces him that he doesn't uh, disbelieve God can heal him. And so uh, he asks that they pray over him, and they do, but there's still no healing. And so when he asks why, he says, well, it's your elders in that church you're a part of. They're unbelieving. That's the reason you're not uh, healed. This is a terrible teaching, and it's a distortion of what Jesus is uh, saying. At its heart, it rests on a pagan idea. That idea is that if I want something bad enough and I think about it long enough, it will become true. This is actually what Norman Vincent Peale uh, believed and taught in his pulpit. Uh, It's sometimes labeled uh, new thought. In other words, it says, my thoughts create reality. I create my own reality by what I uh, think. The New Age movement uh, taught something uh, like this. Uh, It's expressed in a Christian way uh, by the the phrase, name it and uh, claim it. In other words, what it's saying is that my faith creates reality. Uh, uh, Isn't, after all, this what Jesus is promising here? Well, it's not at all, because if you take all the teaching of Jesus about prayer, you'll come across this passage in John, where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever believes in me will also do the work that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so this is not an unconditional promise that anything you ask for, believing you'll receive it, the the condition is in my name. That means what is in keeping with my character and my will. We can be very confident that if we ask for something that's in keeping with Christ's character and his revealed will, that we will receive it. This is, in fact, uh, what John uh, tells us in one of his letters when he says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. To ask in his name is in keeping with his will. And you can have this great confidence when you're asking for what you know is his revealed will. You see, the nature of true faith is that it is unconditionally open to God. Prayer is focusing and directing our faith with specific requests. Leaving the outcome in the hands of our all-wise, loving, and powerful Lord. Now, dear church, there, we've come to a time in your life where especially it's important that we pray with faith. The most immediate challenge is finding a new pastor. And um, hear these words closely. The head of the church, Jesus Christ, is the chief placement officer. He is the personnel director. He has someone to be your pastor. And in his time, he will bring that person to you. And so you should pray with confidence to the personnel director that he do this. You should labor in prayer until he does this. But the other biggest challenge, and it's not unique to you in this season, it's perhaps the greatest challenge for the church in North America. And it's this, it is to faithfully witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to carry out this ministry that's entrusted uniquely to the church. It's not given to the government. uh, It's not given to the family. It is given to the church of Jesus Christ to make known the gospel and to do so faithfully to communicate it to the people you live next to, the people you work with, the people you watch a sporting event with or or hike with or whatever it is you do uh, to relax and have uh, fun. And to communicate it faithfully uh, to Laurel and the surrounding communities where we live. This is a great challenge. And I won't kid you, it's it's a real challenge to communicate this uh, to the rising generations that are increasingly skeptical of the church and don't feel they have any need for any kind of spiritual involvement in their lives. Christ is sufficient for us. We can pray with complete confidence 
that there are people that he has prepared from before the foundation of the world that he wants to gather into his body. Whether it's a few or many, I do not know. But you can pray with absolute confidence that there are people he has placed in your life that he's at work among. There are people in this community that Jesus wants to use us as a church uh, to reach. Jesus is amazingly patient. He's just filled with compassion as he encounters this man with unbelief, with the presumption of his disciples. He doesn't just cast them off. With the smallness of faith and our slowness to understand his ways. Come to him. Joseph's heart appeals to us so beautifully in this hymn. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. He is willing. Doubt no more. Let not conscience make you linger. Some of you are holding back from coming to Christ. Don't let your conscience hinder you or or think that fitness somehow will happen to you, that you'll fondly dream of it. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. And he closes this hymn with this stanza. Lo, the incarnate God pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him. Venture is an old word. It means take a risk. Risk. Take the risk of faith. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. Don't trust yourself. None but Jesus, none but Jesus, none but Jesus can helpless sinners do, do helpless sinners good, can do helpless sinners good. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to the Lord Jesus Christ in our, in our weakness, in our inadequacy, and in the incompleteness of our faith with poverty of spirit and ask that you would grant us faith Give us faith for the things that press upon us, the things we've given up on, the things where we recognize we're helpless. Give us faith to come together this evening and to plead with you for a new pastor and plead with you for an effective, faithful ministry of the gospel through us, here and every place we live and work. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.